This is not a bus. It's a great big green and cream time machine. Even when there's nobody sitting on it, it's somehow still full of people from the past. The people who built it, the people who worked on it, the people who used it to go to work, and the people whose lives worked because of it. It's a piece of our kingdom, a part of the places it served, the places it's helped to build. Okay, so it is a bus. But if you've ever been lucky enough to ride on one of the nation's vintage buses or coaches, you'll know that they do, quite literally, transport you to another place and time. The rich colours and shining liveries of the past, the feel and smell of the fabrics inside, and good, solid materials from a time where we valued that. Oh, and the sounds. See how it's easy to get lost in old buses. Would you believe there are as many as 10,000 historic buses and coaches preserved in the UK? They're owned by museums, charities and private collectors. Yes, that's right, people who collect buses. And we're not talking about the model ones. Driving a Brutemaster in central London is one of my principal relaxations. It still feels slightly unreal that I can get into the cab of my Leyland TD5. And not only am I in the cab, but I own it as well. The buses are housed all over the country. Museums, old industrial buildings, barns and on farms. Each one is lovingly preserved for what it is and the stories it has to tell. And we often talk about national treasures. Well, these bygone gems really are. And although they're spread out across the country, together they are effectively a national collection which tells the story of the buses and coaches, and therefore the people and places, of the United Kingdom. In this series of podcasts, we'll hear plenty of those stories as we follow the bus inspectors, a group of transport lovers, experts and historians who are touring the country's museums and collections on a mission to grade the nation's historic fleet. Working with the National Association of Road Transport Museums, they hope to identify the most important survivors, the ones which tell us most about the national story, so that they may be recognised and prioritised in the future. In this first episode of the Bus Inspectors podcast, We'll delve into the appeal of vintage buses. The destinations on the buses. While the general public will not know that they're pointing at a Leyland Atlantean, they will point at the bus and say, oh look, there's a five to Castle Milk. We'll consider the future of bus preservation. We're not getting younger people coming in to take over from us. And when I say younger, I'm talking about under 50. And how grading the nation's collection might help. Working out which ones are special and why and then making some effort to make sure they are the ones that live into the fifth and sixth decades of the 21st century, I think that's probably a really sensible thing to do, isn't it? And most importantly of all, we'll be embarking on a journey through time. Bye-bye.
bus. My mother didn't drive at all. She never learned to drive. We had to go by bus. That was the only way we could go. Old buses when I was a little girl, going up to see me nan in Pontypool. 54A from where I grew up near Sirencester. It was the 354 to go from Backwell to Nailsey. Peaks buses, the old Sharabang. Pullums, it was Pullums buses, in fact, of Cheltenham. The bigger buses were, I think, the 352 in and out of the city. The seats were that kind of shiny, velvety. Furry, a little bit sticky in places. And of course, in those days, people used to smoke everywhere. We had the ashtrays on the back of the seats. No seat belts, nothing like that. Yeah, it was just daily life. We all remember the buses we grew up with. And to most of us, they were the only buses in the world. And yet, just like cars, there have been thousands of different types of buses and coaches designed and constructed by hundreds of different bus builders. For example, this... is a 1953 Bristol LS6G coach, formerly operated by Royal Blue in the West Country. And this is a 1927 Guy FBB, formerly operated by the Great Western Railway Road Motors Division. And this is a 1965 AEC Routemaster, formerly operated by London Transport. No introductions necessary. Now, some listening will have recognised each and every one of those just from the let alone the or the and that was a Bristol Lowdecker by the way if you didn't and all of this talk is alien don't worry you'll pick it up as you listen without even realising some believe the love of old buses is infectious and one person from whom you're certain to catch the bug is Peter Lord Hendy of Richmond Hill President of the National Association of Road Transport Museums and owner-driver of not one, but two, Routemasters. You're sitting up there, you're Routemaster, master of the road. Uh, you can see everything. You've got a beautiful vehicle. It's easy to drive. Actually, a Routemaster is easy to drive. And every few hundred yards, people take pictures of you. You stop at traffic lights. They sit, stand in front of the bus, get their friends to take a picture of it. It's just brilliant, and it's really enjoyable. And the people on the bus enjoy it too, even though the heating on Routemasters wasn't any use when it was new and isn't any use now they're 60 years old. I really love it. Every year, Lord Peter and his pals gather with their buses on the remote plains of Wiltshire to run a vintage bus service to the lost village of Imber. If you were ever in any doubt about the appeal of old buses, Imber Bus is the place to be. What we've proved is that actually people travelling on old buses is not just limited to bus enthusiasts. 
the general public at large really welcome the opportunity to travel on vehicles older than they are themselves and ones on which they uh, may be too young to have ever remembered travelling. In fact, one of the barriers to fast loading people at Imber, frankly, is people's unfamiliarity with getting on an open rear platform double-deck bus. They all want to ask questions as they get on. It may have started as a bit of fun, but the service is properly registered and licensed. Lord Peter and his friends are able to take fares for charity. Last year was so successful, we scheduled 37 vehicles, 34 turned up, three of them broke down during the course of the day, but wound up with 31. We took £38,000 net in fares and must have carried at least four or 5,000 people. So Imberbus proves that there's a big market for people to see and travel on old vehicles and experience what it was like to travel on them years ago. And in one sense, that's why you want them to be mobile. You don't want them to sit in museums. I think it's a bit like seeing stuffed animals in museums. You want them to leap about and do what they do. Most transport museums and collections in the UK seem to agree and whenever they possibly can, use their historic buses and coaches as living exhibits, bringing them out of their homes and giving the opportunity to experience bygone travel. Helen Bolt is a trustee of the Thames Valley and Great Western Omnibus Trust, which treats the public to more than 20,000 free vintage bus rides each year. Their whole purpose is to move, to transport people. And the authentic experience is to have the vehicle moving. You have to catch the bus, you have to find your seat, you've got the sounds, you've got the motion as a passenger, there's planning how you get off, there's your interaction with the conductor. It's a complete experience, not to mention the fantastic view that you can get from inside the bus as you travel along. I think that's what brings the whole experience and the whole purpose of buses and passenger road transport alive, even to people who don't necessarily travel daily on buses today. But perhaps it introduces them to that experience and they realise the benefits of it um, and hopefully go on to, to catch the bus on the corner today. So for some, a chance to remember their everyday past. For others, it may be a window on a previously unknown mode of transport. Here's Ray Bignall from the Ribble Vehicle Preservation Trust. The older generation of passengers, a lot of them will almost immediately say, oh, I went to school on these or I went to work on these. They have a personal memory. The next generation, often there are quite a few younger children, certainly up to secondary school age, may well never have been on a bus there's a lot for whom it's the first experience and consequently of course we try and make that as pleasant and enjoyable and as much fun as it can be to uh, win them over to bus travel in general. In a world that has become choked with cars, where a climate crisis is forcing us to think about how we can change our ways, could it be that these old buses offer more than just a nice reminder of our past? but inspiration too, for where we should go in the future. Peter, Lord Hendy, 
I think taking old buses and coaches out reminds people subliminally that actually mass public transport by road is still a good thing. I think, in fact, it's also a reminder to the people who manage the current bus industry that trying to change the names, the route numbers and everything all the time is not terribly bright and that actually some of the old names and some of the history of the bus industry is frankly worth keeping. I think those of the major groups who've kept the names of the companies that they've bought over a long length of time have probably got more loyalty out of their market than people who keep changing them. Old vehicles with those names on, people are familiar with them, they're part of the scenery, bringing out old vehicles in those circumstances just makes people happier, so let's do it. You're listening to the Bus Inspectors Podcast. It's brought to you by the National Association of Road Transport Museums, who are undertaking a project to grade the nation's historic buses and coaches. Later, we'll be finding out why the project is needed. We need to undertake this exercise really to truly assess what is the extent of our heritage out there as far as road-going vehicles is concerned. And how grading the nation's collection will work. We have eight categories of scoring across a variety of features. And as far as we possibly can, we are going to be scoring on a very objective basis. First, there's an elephant in the room for bus preservation. For most of our museums and collections, it seemed to move in overnight and has gradually but quite peacefully, edged its way towards centre spot on the mezzanine floor. Who's going to be first to mention it? Go on. Bus inspector Paul Statham. I think the biggest challenge, and we all suffer from it, is the fact that the majority of us that are involved in preservation are, I would be fair to say we're old, most of us are, are probably 70 plus, um, and getting older, some of us fairly rapidly, and we're not getting younger people coming in to take over from us. And when I say younger, I'm talking about under 50. But we need people even younger if it's going to carry on forever. It's something we all recognise. Ray Bignall. You'll find that overwhelmingly for a lot of the groups, the people who are keeping the show on the road are mainly in their 60s, 70s or even older. That isn't to say there aren't some younger people involved, but the people who have the time and the experience to actually run an organisation tend to be at the higher end of the spectrum. And, you know, eventually those people feel it's all getting too much or some illness befalls them and we're beginning to lose that coterie of uh, expertise. Bus preservation itself dates back to the late 1950s and early 60s, when pioneers of preservation were saving their pocket money, literally in some cases, and saving from the scrapyard the kinds of buses they'd grown up alongside. Back then, these pioneers were young, but then, relatively speaking, so were their old buses. Might this be the point? The museums have got to get newer vehicles in, which... The old story is, of course, I remember going to school on that. Well, they didn't go to school on on AEC Renaults. They went to school on darts and Olympians and things. So, therefore, I think part of the key is getting those vehicles in the collections. So the relatability of buses is key. 
Peter, Lord Hendy, agrees. I think if you think there might be a problem with the age and diversity of the audience for this, that's the answer, which is that we know from the London Bus Museum, and I think it's true from bus preservation, that younger people are interested, but they want to get involved with things that they know, not things that they don't. And I think that that's true across the transport spectrum, actually. It's one of the reasons in the railway world why steam locomotive memorabilia has passed its peak in price terms. So I don't think there's a problem with people being enthusiastic at a younger age. I think the issue is then that the vehicle park is very firmly skewed to those vehicles which were remembered by people of my age, of 70 and a bit older and a bit younger, and they don't necessarily appeal to really young people because they never experienced them. Meet Luke Williamson. Luke and his friends in North Devon have just clubbed together to save their favourite bus, an East Lanx low-line-bodied Dennis Trident. And yes, it is a vintage bus. So this bus is a 2000 model which makes it 24 this year. I am 20, so I, I am four years younger than the bus. Me and most of the group remember this vehicle in service with first, and a few of us have got some access to photos of it. These buses need to be preserved because they are what we are going to remember in 50 years' time, you know. When I'm 70 odd, I'm going to look back on this vehicle, hopefully, and still see it driving around, or at least in a museum where it's safe, and just go, I helped save that, and it'll be something to be proud of for the rest of my life. Our collections must evolve. One organisation which has embraced the arrival of not-quite-so-old vehicles is the Glasgow Vintage Vehicle Trust, whose museum at the old garage in Bridgeton is a huge attraction for Scotland and for people of all ages. Stephen Booth is their chairman. I think the one vehicle right at the moment that uh, surprises folk when they come into the garage is a Van Hool Astro Mega coach. It's only 11 years old, so it doesn't really quite fit the bill of a typical classic or preserved vehicle. But the vehicle has an interesting story insofar as it was a, a sleeper coach and it was a, a purpose-built sleeper coach, one of a number that uh, Stagecoach introduced during the, the, the 2010s. It's been preserved. People can come on, on the vehicle and, and see it in, in its partially reconfigured layout with beds. Uh, and get a feel for what it might have been like trundling up and down the road between Scotland and London overnight on that. In order for bus and coach preservation to thrive into the future, it's not just our collections which must evolve. Attracting new volunteers is only part of the challenge. To date, bus museums and collections have had the luxury of a thriving enthusiast market to which they can play. People who already have a deep interest and understanding of the bus. As the generations move on, new audiences must be found. And Glasgow Vintage Vehicle Trust knows where to look. Our aim is really to focus on families. We need to try and grab the interest of kids at an early stage. And maybe some of them don't even realise they've got an interest in transport yet. And we need to kind of get them into our events, you know, let them experience running on a bus or see work going on on some of the buses. And hopefully, to begin with, that starts with you know, repeat visits to our events. 
and then you hope that there's a perhaps a level of conversion, if I can call it that, which converts them from being just interested into, well, I'd like to take my interest further, you know, and I'd like to get involved in something, or, you know, I want to read more about it or find out more about it online. So how can old buses be used to inspire new interest? It's not enough to put a bit of information about your Leyland Titan PD2, about where it operated and what garages it was based in and things like that. You need to actually provide some things that are focused on the family that happen in your garage. It encourages them to spend more time there. So one activity we've done actually for many years is a treasure hunt. And really it keeps the kids occupied as they try and find the different objects. And you know it keeps them in the garage for quite a while and... and you know, it helps boost their interest. That's not to say there's any less focus on the traditional bus enthusiast, whose interests are still to be indulged with the sights and sounds, facts and figures they've always turned out in force to consume. But adding families to the mix has proven to be a winner. We had a great year last year our best year on record and, and we've been keeping statistics for the last 12-13 years now and everybody had the downside of Covid and the impact to what we were able to do but um, we feel the bounce back from that and and really we're past the worst effects of the pandemic that really in the last year they, those numbers were great. The changing demographic of volunteers and audiences is just one of the challenges being faced by bus preservation right now. And in future episodes of the Bus Inspectors podcast, we'll explore some others. At some stage, both petrol and diesel, I suspect, are going to get more difficult to find. In some cases, the spare parts you need are no longer available, so you have to get them engineered from scratch. Accommodation, that's always a problem. The recent fire and the loss of eight vehicles, including one of the Friends of King Alfred vehicles, demonstrates all too easily how storing vehicles isn't easy, even when you've got covered storage. The other thing is some of the newer vehicles are getting very complicated, and you virtually need to be an electrical engineer to restore a bus these days rather than a mechanical engineer. If you've thoughts you'd like to share on any of these, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch on our socials and via thebusinspectors.com. It was my cousin's wedding up in Yorkshire, just outside Halifax. My mum didn't drive, so we got a bus. I can remember going with my mum up to see Nana, and we used to get on a bus that I was a little bit scared of. My mum, my sister, me, and my granny, Granny Goodfellow. A sharp bend in Pennygarn Hill, and the road got even steeper as it went round the bend. And I remember the distinct smell of egg sandwiches that she made, because obviously it was cheaper than anything else then. So we had egg sandwiches on the way up. It stopped because he had to crunch it, probably into first gear. You know the hatch that they have? Well, this hatch kept popping open and then he'd be crunching it into gear and it just kept banging open and you could see the engine in the road underneath I was frightened we were going to roll back down the hill into the Avon Fluid which everybody knows is one of the fastest flowing rivers in the country there's mum sat in her dress fagging her mouth with her foot on this hatch and then we go on our weary way up Pennygarn Hill really really slowly trying to not show everybody her knickers every old bus is full of stories. And it's because of stories and personal connections that so many of the UK's preserved buses and coaches have survived. 
because we want them to live on. But with generations evolving, interests changing and growing competition for resources, can preservation really mean forever? Old buses are quite easy to acquire, which means there are quite a lot of them. And if it's true that younger people are more interested in vehicles that they've seen on the road when they were young, then this huge preponderance of vehicles built in the 40s, 50s, 60s and perhaps 70s may not all have homes in the next 30 years. It's a sobering thought for bus preservationists, but one that the movement must face as it evolves. Peter, Lord Hendy, sees the need for action. It's a brilliant advertisement for the work that the National Association of Road Transport Museums has started about a grading and style system for old PSVs. Looking at each of them, working out why they're special. They're not just special to the people who own them and the people who've restored them. All these vehicles are, are cherished by those people. But working out which ones most deserve to be in collections of the future is a really sensible thing to do. Enter the bus inspectors and their mission to grade the UK's historic fleet. <laughs> Grading is already widely used in many parts of the UK heritage sector as a tool to recognise and protect important survivors. Historic buildings have a grading system that is well known, and you might be surprised to learn, so do many other forms of heritage transport, such as preserved ships and planes. The heritage movement has long seen a need for historic buses and coaches to be graded, with calls from important funding bodies such as the National Lottery Heritage Fund, who urged the National Association to embark on this project. Ray Bignall has taken the lead. The primary reason is to identify the ones that we want to survive in a healthy condition in the very long term. And by the very long term, I mean at least 50, 60, 70 years ahead, a representative sample of vehicles that tell the story of the evolution of passenger road transport. Our transport museums also see the need for grading. Stephen Booth from Glasgow Vintage Vehicle Trust. With being fully engaged in the grading scheme, we're making proactive steps to assess what it is that we've got and to locate the things that are truly significant. If I have some worries about the future is that we won't be able to save everything and that before too long, a lot of the people who have saved vehicles and taken care of these vehicles over time are perhaps no longer with us or, or at least able to, to look after the vehicles in the way that they have. Grading the nation's fleet is one thing, but how can it help the most important survivors in practical terms? You will often read about a church or a, a civic structure that's been granted money by the Lottery Heritage Fund because it needs restoration work doing on it. And if it's grade one or grade two listed, it will have a far higher chance of getting that funding than something that's never been listed. That is a very good analogy with what we are doing. So what makes one old bus more historically significant than another? As we said, many of the vehicles have survived for subjective reasons particularly those in private collections, where, of course, preservationists are going to spend their money on vehicles which have a personal significance, rather than out of duty to the nation. 
but for the purposes of grading, the bus inspectors must be objective. Ray is clear that this is about telling a story to future generations. We want to be able to show how over the 100 plus years that motorised road transport has been operating, the way they have evolved mechanically, electrically, operationally, and indeed how they've evolved within a social context to meet the needs of the passengers that they carry. These things change over the years and you really need to be able to tell the story if you're going to understand what is a vital part of uh, Britain's economic history. The bus inspectors will be working with owners and museum curators to develop a deep understanding of each vehicle, what it represents and the stories it tells. The National Association has carefully devised an objective scoring system. It combines best practice from grading systems used all over the world, but has been specially designed for UK buses and coaches. It consists of a matrix of questions to test different aspects of a vehicle's design, operation and history. For example... Step changes in engineering design, which made a considerable difference to the way the industry operated. To take an example, the Leyland uh, company brought out a, a double-deck bus called the Atlantean, which had an engine at the back and the door at the extreme front. And not only did that carry more passengers, but very importantly, in subsequent years, it allows the buses to be operated on a one-person basis by the driver and reduce costs to the industry by doing away with the conductor. So that was an engineering change that produced an operational change. A vehicle's social significance is also considered, the impact it had on people's lives, and regional significances are also recorded. Rarity is another factor, and also the vehicle's authenticity, how accurate is the story it tells. We'll discover more about the intricacies of grading as we follow the bus inspectors on their tour. But preliminary tests have already shown why objectivity is needed. My personal pride and joy, my TD5, scored slightly less than our 2004 Dennis Trident, which I found extremely annoying. But I had to live with it because um, I was applying the, the scoring system objectively as best I could. But it, it does show that there's no guarantee. For example, the older vehicles will always score higher. The concept of grading the nation's collection has been well received by museums and collections within the National Association. Those are the ones the bus inspectors will be visiting first, accounting for 60% of the national collection, that's some 6,000 vehicles. The longer-term ambition is to include private collections too, that's another 4,000 vehicles. And many private owners have already asked to be included when the time comes. Ultimately, the future of our preserved buses and coaches comes down to the people and organisations who own them. But as ownership changes and collections evolve over time, it is hoped that the most important survivors will benefit from the recognition and understanding that grading can bring. Inevitably, some will be nervous about what this means for the rest. So long as their owners, or the group of owners, have the funds and the willingness to continue to preserve them, there is no way anybody is going to suggest they should be done away with. It's more important to look at it the other way around. 
which is how we focus on the ones that need to be saved. Nobody but nobody in our group is going to be suggesting to any preservationist that their vehicle is not worthy of them keeping. We're all in favour of keeping a very wide selection where it's possible. But on the occasions where something might be a threat, we want to make sure it is known to be an important piece of history that has to be funded for the future. You know, if only there'd been someone with a clipboard from the dawn of the motorbus era to the present day, standing at the gates of every bus depot in the land, saying, Save this one, Charlie. It tells an important story about drop centre rear axles. Or, let him go, son. We've already got one of these. But that's not how bus preservation has ever worked. Nor would it work like that. Our hearts have led us to assemble a magnificent collection of vehicles, which means something to us. But now is the time to do something with our heads to inform decisions in the future. And the bus inspectors, with the support of our wonderful network of transport museums and owners, are ready to help. We get the scheme underway, everybody fully participates in it. It will give us a really rich database of the vehicles that are in preservation round about the UK. And from there, we can start to focus some attention on making sure that the the really significant vehicles that illustrate our transport heritage are looked after for generations to come. Next time on the Bus Inspectors podcast, we'll remember the pioneers of preservation. He had to buy one of these buses when he left school, so Dad managed to find out who had bought the six, and he had to meet somebody down a back street in Exeter who was a dealer and then purchase it off of them. We'll get philosophical about livery. Just suppose, instead of buses, we were scoring ancient monuments and one of them was Stonehenge, right? But somebody's painted it blue. And we'll join the bus inspectors on their first visits to our transport museums. Follow us in the meantime on Facebook, X, YouTube, Insta and Threads and at thebusinspectors.com. The Bus Inspectors podcast was presented and produced by me, David Shepherd. Our guests were Peter, Lord Hendy of Richmond Hill, Ray Bignall, Helen Bolt, Rebecca Jones, Kerry Thorne, Stephen Booth and Paul Statham. And it was brought to you by the National Association of Road Transport Museums. Music